One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The counties of Edessa and Tripoli the Principality of Antioch, and the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Forged out of the blood-soaked First Crusade, these Levantine states stumbled onto the world stage during an era of immense change. These tiny outposts of Latin Christendom were cut off from their homeland by the vast Mediterranean, and it was this distance that gave them their name, l'Outremer, what lies beyond the sea. For nearly 200 years, the Uchimer states fought to survive in a world of crusades and jihads, of holy orders, assassins, and mamluks, claiming squatters' rights to erstwhile Seljuk, Fatimid, and Byzantine provinces. Join us at History of the Uchimer as we explore the tale of those kingdoms beyond the sea. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 242, Manuel's Follies. Last time, we spent an entire episode in the Balkans, watching as Manuel reduced the region to submission. He got involved in the Hungarian succession, groomed his own candidate, and installed him on the throne. He also humbled the Serbs, occupied Sirmium, and brought the cities of Dalmatia back into the imperial fold. An impressive series of achievements, though I raised a note of concern that these gains were largely temporary and used up a decade of the emperor's time that could have been better spent in Anatolia. Well, that's not all Manuel was doing during that decade. In today's episode, we look further afield across the same time period. Though Manuel's armies spent the 1160s in the Balkans, his diplomats were at work elsewhere, as were his fleets, and Manuel himself was busy pondering other ways he could improve Byzantium's standing in the wider Christian world. Today's episode really demonstrates the crowded chessboard at its most convoluted Every diplomatic move that Manuel made had consequences for half a dozen other states. It may get a little confusing at times, but stay with me, and we'll see if you become as perplexed as I am at the Emperor's decision-making. Let's start with Italy. Back in episode 235, we discussed Manuel's efforts in Italy during the 1150s. 
As you'll recall, Komnenos sent a small army to Ancona in central Italy, and this force marched south, stirring up the locals to join them in throwing off Norman rule. Unfortunately, the Normans of Sicily were too strong for this expeditionary force and wiped them out. Though Manuel made peace with the Normans, he did not abandon Italy. He spent the 1160s pouring money and diplomatic energy into the country to try and achieve his ends. Rather than turning the elites against the Normans, though, Byzantine diplomacy was now working against the German emperor, Frederick Barbarossa. As we discussed last week, Barbarossa was a fearsome individual who was determined to have all his rights as emperor of the Romans recognised. This included the domination of all of Italy, which he considered to be part of his empire. Frederick's predecessor, Conrad, had been friendly towards Byzantium and was willing to gift them some Apulian ports if they helped him fight the Normans. But Barbarossa was having none of this, seeing Byzantine claims to be the real Roman Empire as an affront to his office. His position wasn't set in stone, but he frowned on Manuel's invasion and the continued presence of his agents at Ancona. As we saw in our last episode, Manuel was determined to carve out his own sphere of influence and prevent Barbarossa from gaining ground on his border, hence the wars with Hungary. But Komnenos went one further, lavishing huge sums of money on the elites of Italy to stiffen their resistance to German rule. This was not difficult to manufacture, since most of Italy was united against Frederick anyway. As we also discussed back in episode 235, when the sitting pope died, Frederick raised up his own papal candidate, while the rest of the Christian world ended up supporting Alexander III, who seemed the more legitimate successor. This put Manuel in a difficult position. He could have backed Frederick's candidate in an attempt to win Barbarossa's favour, but that would have put him at odds with the Venetians, the Normans, the French, and Outremer. Since Manuel's major fear was that the Latin world would launch another crusade against him, he backed Alexander. At this point, Manuel could have remained reasonably neutral. He could have waited until the coming wars between Barbarossa and the Italians played out. But instead, he got actively involved, sending money to the towns of Italy in order to maintain his influence there. He already had men from Ancona, Pisa, Genoa, and Venice on the payroll, and he now extended these payments to towns across the north and centre of Italy, including men in Siena, Ravenna, Milan. He also married his niece, Ephthorchia, to Odo Frangipani, a man from one of the leading families in Rome itself. Barbarossa wanted the cities of northern Italy to submit to him so that he could march to Rome, install his own pope, and be officially crowned emperor. Frederick led three separate campaigns into Italy during this period, each ending in failure, and Manuel was actively aiding his enemies, providing the money that was used to buy arms and build fortifications. Barbarossa must have known this was going on. It was extremely provocative behaviour from Manuel even if Byzantine troops were never involved. So why was Manuel willing to anger the Germans, given he'd been their ally 
just a few years earlier. The answer seems to lie in an offer made by Pope Alexander III. Given Frederick's repeated invasions, there was a good chance that the pontiff would be dethroned and imprisoned if the Germans reached the Eternal City. So during his correspondence with Manuel, the Pope offered to recognize Komnenos as the one and only Roman Emperor. This was an offer which Manuel couldn't refuse. If granted, it would remove the stigma which had attached to the Byzantines ever since the First Crusade. As you know, many Latins felt that the Byzantines were not committed to the crusading ideal, perhaps even hostile to it. If Manuel was recognized by the Pope as the head of Christendom, then surely no one could doubt his intentions or think of attacking him. But to actually realize this goal was surely impossible. The Eastern and Western churches remained at odds over a number of issues. And physically, what was the Pope asking of the Byzantines? Presumably, he wanted to be defended against Barbarossa's armies. But was he really going to encourage Byzantine troops to enter Rome? The towns of Italy enjoyed their independence. That was why they risked their safety to fight Barbarossa. Were they going to feel any differently about Greek troops landing on their shores? Despite these myriad obstacles, Manuel continued to pursue this dream. Not only did money flow into Italy, but the emperor began to bully his own church into submission. A doctrinal dispute blew up in the mid-1160s over the Catholic interpretation of Jesus' statement that my father is greater than I. This comes from John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 28. I won't go into the details, but... Manuel fought hard to get the Latin understanding of this passage accepted by the Orthodox Church. Working with his Latin advisor, Hugh Etariano, the emperor personally made the case at a church synod and then forced through a compromise formula despite persistent resistance from his own bishops. This heavy-handed intervention was a warm-up for the real challenge of attempting to unite the Eastern and Western churches. In 1167, Pope Alexander sent three cardinals to Constantinople to discuss the possibility. This was a political event, more than a religious one, since the various doctrinal differences that we've discussed in the past were diplomatically ignored. Instead, the negotiations centred on the thorny issue of authority. Was there a way to reconcile the Pope's claim to universal control of the Church with the Vasilevs being God's vice-regent? The short answer is, of course, no. The Byzantines attempted to find common ground, and a draft treaty was drawn up. Manuel was willing to accept the pontiff as head of the Church if Alexander would acknowledge him as the true emperor. But once the cardinals were back in Rome, sticking points emerged. Papal ideology required that Rome be seen as the imperial city. The separation of powers that Manuel was proposing would weaken papal authority too much. And there was no way that Manuel was going to reduce the status of new Rome to make it merely an outpost of the old. Surely, both sides must have known that the chances of finding a compromise were tiny. The Pope 
may never have seriously considered it. Perhaps Alexander merely dangled the possibility as part of his diplomatic manoeuvring. That same year, 1167, Barbarossa's latest invasion of Italy failed, and the need for Byzantine protection began to fade. Manuel's actions suggest that he was very serious about the issue, though, which makes it even more surprising when he abruptly changed his tune the following year. As you may remember from last week, the Germans had made conciliatory noises during Manuel's Hungarian campaigns, at one point offering joint action against their mutual neighbour. Around 1168, Barbarossa again sent out feelers to see if Constantinople might be interested in renewing their old alliance. And Manuel jumped at the chance. Ignoring the past decade's worth of antagonism, Komnenos seemed thrilled at the prospect of restoring the alliance that had been in effect at the start of his reign. This was to be sealed by the marriage of Manuel's daughter Maria to Barbarossa's son. Remember that Maria's engagement to Bella, the soon-to-be king of Hungary, had just been called off. This all might sound a bit surprising, given Manuel was actively trying to undermine Frederick five minutes ago, yet now was willing to buddy up with him and by extension acknowledge Barbarossa's position as a Roman emperor. We have to conclude that deep down, Manuel felt this was the best policy for Byzantium all along. An alliance with the Germans offered the two things which Constantinople really wanted. Protection from a crusade being sent against them, and an ally who could fight the Normans. Ultimately, the Byzantines still saw the Normans of Sicily as the biggest threat to their security, and only the Germans possessed the muscle and the will to put pressure on them. Manuel's antagonistic diplomacy may always have had two faces, seemingly working against Barbarossa, while also pressuring him into renewing their alliance. If the German alliance had been restored, then perhaps a decade of lavish spending and hazardous antagonism was justified after all. But the German alliance never materialised. Barbarossa changed his mind. Or perhaps, like Pope Alexander, he never really intended to follow through. In the wake of his failure to reach Rome, Barbarossa wanted to disengage the Byzantines from Italy, to stop them funding his enemies and nix any talk of Manuel being hailed as the only Roman emperor. Added to this, Barbarossa had heard rumours that Manuel's daughter Maria was being offered to William II, the new king of Sicily, which was true. Soon after the engagement to Bella was broken off, Manuel had made contact with the young king and suggested the union. After all, if the Germans weren't going to make peace, then it made sense to keep the Normans sweet, and nothing would guarantee their good behaviour better than a born-in-the-purple bride. Apparently, King William actually set off for Apulia, ready to greet his Comnenian fiancée, when Manuel changed his mind. The possibility of his daughter wedding Barbarossa's son was too good to turn down, and he withdrew his offer to the Normans. So by the end of this diplomatic back and forth, the Germans pulled away, turning down the marriage and the alliance. 
the Pope was no closer to making Manuel his emperor, and the Normans were furious at the snub they had suffered. Manuel's clever diplomatic games were not looking so clever after all. And it gets worse, because in the meantime, Manuel had declared war on Venice. Two episodes ago, we talked all about the flood of Italians now trading on the Golden Horn at Constantinople. You know the gist by now. Alexius Komnenos had needed Venetian aid to fight the Normans, and so he cut their trade dues down to zero. John Komnenos tried to restore the old order, and the Venetians went on the rampage, raiding Byzantine lands until the emperor backed down. Manuel, in an attempt to further invest the Latins in the survival of his empire, had granted similar concessions to the Pisans and then the Genoese. These concessions came with a strip of land along the Golden Horn where these Italian communities could live in their own special zones. Placing these plots of land next door to one another sounded like a good idea, but it wasn't. In 1162, a group of Pisan sailors, backed by their Venetian mates, stormed the Genoese quarter. The Genoese had only just moved in, and the angry mob attacked them and vandalised their buildings. Manuel responded swiftly by removing both the Pisans and the Genoese from the Golden Horn. The Venetians, who were too valuable to offend, were left where they were. Eight years later, though, Manuel wanted the Pisans and Genoese back. He probably had multiple reasons for this, but one consideration may have been that they were allies of Frederick Barbarossa, and with the German alliance back on the cards, it made sense to be on good terms with the Emperor's friends. In the summer of 1170, first the Genoese and then the Pisans reappeared on the Golden Horn, with their warehouses and shops returned to them and their trade duties cut back down to 4%. The response from the local Venetians was savage. Having gotten used to a virtual monopoly on certain items at the capital, the Venetians were furious to see their rivals moving in next door. A huge gang of Venetians assaulted the Genoese quarter, pulling down their buildings and killing those who opposed them. Manuel called the leaders of the resident Venetians to see him, demanded compensation and an apology, and got neither. In fact, they allegedly threatened him with the repeat of the raids that Byzantium had suffered under his father John. Whether they actually said this to his face, we can't be sure, but the threat was widely reported. Such a display of arrogance and essentially treason could not go unpunished. Relations between Byzantium and the actual state of Venice were also at a low point in 1170. As we talked about last time, the Byzantines took control of the coastal cities of Dalmatia from the Hungarians in the mid-1160s, but those Dalmatian cities had for centuries been under Venetian influence. The Italians had fought the Hungarians for access to those cities and were none too pleased to see them fall into Byzantine hands. Shortly afterwards, Byzantine officials had travelled to Venice to discuss a naval operation against the Normans and had been rebuffed. It was perhaps this growing hostility that also encouraged Manuel to restore the privileges of the Genoese and Pisans. So, 
Faced with an unfriendly Venetian state who didn't seem to be fulfilling their obligations, and a resident population of Venetians who were unrepentantly breaking the law, Manuel decided to take a drastic step. On the 12th of March, 1171, the emperor ordered that all Venetians living in the Byzantine Empire should be arrested and imprisoned immediately. In an impressive display of power and efficiency, officials across the empire had been informed in advance, acted on the same day, and managed not to tip off the Italians in the process. Thousands of Venetians from Dyrrhachium to the Danube were rounded up and shoved inside prisons and monasteries. On the Golden Horn there was chaos, with some jumping into the sea to evade capture, and about a dozen Venetian ships making a break for it and escaping. The rest were locked up with no word of when they would be set free. This was a shocking act. Its unannounced and permanent nature, directed against an ally and fellow Christian nation, was unprecedented. Imprisonment just wasn't a tactic medieval states really indulged in, since the costs of guarding and feeding large numbers of people was prohibitive. It suggests that the Byzantines were deeply concerned by the erosion of imperial authority, that only drastic action could send the necessary message to the Latins that this is the Roman Empire and you will obey the authority of your ruler. Manuel could have just cancelled the privileges of the Venetians if he'd wanted to, but since that act alone would have led to war, the emperor decided to make a bolder statement one that would resonate louder across the empire, and an act that gave him a host of prisoners to use as bargaining chips. As you can imagine, the Venetians were incandescent with rage and immediately began preparations for war. By September, a fleet left Venice and headed for Byzantine waters. After attacking a couple of outposts, the Doge decided to spend the winter on the island of Chios in the Aegean, while an embassy was sent to Manuel. Komnenos was confident in his position, though. He had a fleet ready to fight back and refused to negotiate. Luck was also with the Vasilevs. While at Chios, some kind of sickness spread through the Venetian camp. A thousand men were dead by the end of its first outbreak. By spring... The envoys returned to say that Manuel was not playing ball and that his fleet were following behind them. The Venetians retreated to another island, but their plague stayed with them, so Manuel employed delaying tactics, suggesting that they send another embassy, but then refusing to negotiate with them either. The emperor's cunning paid off. The Venetians moved on to Lesbos and then Skyros, but their numbers continued to dwindle and they were forced to sail home before they lost so many men that they couldn't sail their ships. When they returned home, the doge who'd led this disastrous expedition was murdered and no new assault on Byzantium was commissioned. On the surface, Manuel had won another great victory, humbling a rebellious ally and demonstrating the authority that would keep others in line. But was this really a victory? It was such an extreme act that it must have caused other powers to look askance at the Byzantines. In fact, it was just the sort of devious, unilateral action that had won the Byzantines a bad reputation during the Crusades. 
Needless to say, the Venetians would never look at the Byzantines the same way again. The close relationship between the two sides that had endured for centuries was officially broken. Negotiations would soon resume, and slowly over the next few years all the prisoners were released, but it's hard to disconnect this incident from the sack of Constantinople in 1204, a campaign led by the Venetians. If the ultimate goal of Manoel's manoeuvring was for Byzantium to be seen as a trusted friend and leader of the Christian world, then it's hard to understand this attack on Venice. It was a move that fitted much better into the playbook of a Byzantine isolationist. By the early 1170s, Manuel had damaged rather than strengthened his standing in Europe. He'd gained a reputation for faithlessness. He'd paid men to fight the Germans and then cozied up to Barbarossa. He'd broken his word to the Normans. And now he'd locked up innocent merchants and thrown away the key. The folly of Manuel's actions soon became clear. The Normans and Venetians, equally offended by the Emperor's behaviour, signed a new treaty of peace and cooperation. And in 1173, Frederick Barbarossa sent forces to besiege the city of Ancona. When he asked for Venetian assistance, they were only too happy to oblige. The siege ultimately failed, but in the space of five years, Manuel had managed to turn three potential allies into enemies. And yet, I'm still not finished. As part of Manuel's attempts to advertise himself as the head of the Christian world, he also invested heavily in his relationship with the Kingdom of Jerusalem. A new king was crowned in 1163, a man named Amalric. After appealing vainly to the West for assistance, the king turned to the Byzantines. He asked Manuel for a Comnenian bride and made an interesting proposal. Would the emperor consider joining him in an attack on Egypt? The Fatimid Caliphate had been ailing for some time, their internal politics increasingly chaotic. They'd even paid the Latins not to attack them. And since the growing power of Nur al-Din had shut down any crusader expansion to the north, Amalric was looking east towards Egypt. The fertile lands of the Nile could provide Outremir with the resources it needed to survive and Amalric had campaigned there immediately upon becoming king, easily defeating the forces sent against him and carrying off some plunder from the Egyptian port of Pelusium. With Byzantine assistance, perhaps the king could seize the ports of Egypt and from there gain control of the rest of the country. It was an outlandish plan that Manuel began to seriously consider. He sent another niece, Maria, to marry Amalric in 1167, and by 1169, free of his Hungarian concerns, he sent word that yes, he did want to join the king in an assault on an Egyptian port. Modern historians are pretty clear that Manoel was not dreaming of bringing Egypt back into the empire. The point of this campaign was to be seen as the friend and protector of the Crusader states. If he could help Amalric capture some Egyptian ports, then the news would filter back west that the Byzantines were, after all, fully on board with the crusading mission. 
The rough plan, had the mission been a success, was for the Byzantines to hold the ports while the Latins moved inland. If this had come to fruition, it would have helped in the conflict with Venice, since the Venetians were the major trading partner of Alexandria. The problem with all this is that it was never going to succeed. The Latins barely had enough men to hold Palestine, let alone Egypt, and why either side thought they could work together, given the endless conflict over Antioch, is beyond me. It's not at all clear how the local Egyptians would have responded had the invasion succeeded, nor did Byzantium have a great record for holding isolated outposts. They were barely clinging on to Cilicia, which was much closer and easier to defend than Egypt would be. In the end, Manuel financed the entire operation, building a fleet of over 200 ships and paying the wages of the Latin soldiers to boot. A huge investment of resources that surely could have been better used in Anatolia. Though I should note that the actual modern historians that I learn from are far kinder about this whole endeavour than I am. Emmanuel entrusted his huge new fleet to Andronicus Contostephanos, the man who'd routed the Hungarians. But the fleet was only equipped with three months' worth of food, suggesting that this was a smash-and-grab operation designed to capture one port only and leave behind a small garrison. Emmanuel was wary of angering the Latins. He really was attempting to support King Amalric in his operation rather than take it over but this attempt to be friendly and cooperative harpooned the whole project. King Amalric seems to have regretted the campaign as soon as the Byzantine fleet arrived in his waters, perhaps because he felt emasculated by the way the invasion was being bankrolled by the Greeks. The sight of Byzantine officials handing out the pay for his operation may have irked him, and his officers complained at the thought of sharing the spoils with their new allies. As a result, he dragged his feet, allowing the Byzantines to run out of supplies. The fleet did reach the Egyptian port of Damietta, about 200 kilometres east of Alexandria, and a siege was set up by November. But Amalric did not press an attack. Andronicus was under orders to follow the king's lead and not take action without permission. But with only a couple of weeks' food left, he urged the Latins to assault the walls. Eventually, Andronicus did attack alone, suffering a steady trickle of casualties as the defenders hurled missiles at his men. Meanwhile, Amalric began secret negotiations with the city's defenders, they agreed to pay him to leave after a token visit to the city. Contostephanos was forced to stand down while the Latins took their victory lap. The Byzantines were left bitter and had to sail home in the now wintry conditions. Dozens of Byzantine ships were destroyed by storms as a result. The entire mission was a debacle. Far from winning the Latins over, the men of Utremir seemed just as sceptical about Byzantine friendship as they ever had. That brings us to the end of a decade or more of Roman life that left me sad and confused. Manuel's diplomacy continues to seem misaligned to me, 
wasting blood and treasure on projects with little chance of success, all the while leaving the Turks free to operate as they pleased. Next time, Manuel will turn his attention back to Anatolia. While he was busy trying to change Latin perceptions of Byzantium, the Sultan of Iconium was busy conquering the entire peninsula. The two powers are set for a major confrontation, and it won't be pretty. While you're waiting for that episode, why not learn more about King Amalric and his ilk on the History of Utremir podcast? I'm sure you'll enjoy reliving the Crusades from another point of view, and then learning all about life in the Crusade Estates with your guide, Alejandro Martinez. A man who I can tell I have plenty in common with. He injects drama and sound effects into his show to bring the story to life, and his recent episode about the Count of Toulouse was titled, Everybody Loves Raymond. Why not go visit historyofoutremere.wordpress.com to find out more, or search History of Outremere wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 